Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. So this is part two of Isadora Duncan's story. And in the first part of this two-parter, we talked about Isadora Duncan's early life in San Francisco and her drive to make a life for herself, her mother, and her siblings that was less defined by financial instability. And she sort of succeeded. Uh, Money would remain a problem for her for the rest of her life. This second episode picks up right after Isadora's triumphant engagement in Budapest, where she sold out a month's worth of shows and had finally found fame because Europe really embraced her. But the comforts afforded by these things was forever clouded by an ongoing series of tragedies. And this episode will feature those more unhappy times and the affairs that dominated the last decade of her life. And yes, we will, of course, cover that famous and tragic end of her life. But we're going to pick up while she is still in Europe, enjoying her acclaim and her new fortune, and turning her sights on the country that she had long revered and imagined. It is really no surprise that a woman who founded her entire style of dance on the ideas she had read as a young girl about the aesthetics of ancient Greece would want to make her way to those ideas' birthplace. Her siblings once again joined her and Dora as they made their way to Greece, She describes them all as being, quote, half mad with joy when they arrived there. Quote, we asked ourselves why we should ever leave Greece since we found in Athens everything which satisfied our aesthetic sense. When Isadora's brother Augustine missed his wife and daughter, Isadora, who at this point was in a much better place financially thanks to her success in Hungary and Germany, arranged for them to join the rest of the family. Yeah, she's so matter-of-fact when she writes about it. She's like, oh, yes, of course, I just sent for them. (laughs) She just threw money at problems. Um, The family also took to wearing clothes in the style of the ancient Greeks, quote, much to the astonishment of the modern Greeks themselves. That's according to Duncan. The family also fell in love with a tract of land atop a hill, which afforded them a view of the Acropolis, and they arranged to purchase it at a fairly steep price from the five families who all had a stake in this property, like their properties all met kind of on top of this hill. And the plan was that the Duncans were going to build a home there, which Raymond designed, despite having no architectural help, uh, and it was based on the Palace of Agamemnon. So... This already sounds a little dicey in the manner of tourists taking on a culture like play acting, and that kind of cringeworthy aspect is echoed in Duncan's own writing about the family temple that they were building and their relationship with the country. Quote, we were completely self-sufficient in our clan. We did not mingle at all with the inhabitants of Athens, even when we heard one day from the peasants that the king of Greece had ridden out to see our temple, we remained unimpressed, for we were living under the reign of other kings, Agamemnon, Menelaus, and Priam. Soon they realized that they had started building their home, their sort of temple of the arts on land that had no water, so... In spite of that, the family did spend a whole year in Greece before they headed back to Vienna. I just love slash hate, (laughs) but it's entertaining to me, like, just the hubris of, like, we're going to go buy this land and we're going to create ancient Greece. We don't want to talk to locals. We just want to wear our togas and dance around in this house. (laughs) Also, we didn't check whether there was water. (laughs) 
No, and they did try to uh, see if they could dig wells, but the, the land was just super dry. I have to wonder if the locals were snickering off somewhere else. Like, yeah, we drove up the price on that land and they bought it. <laughs> and now they can't even live there. Um, however, in 1905, Isadora decided to open her first true dance school. This was a far cry from the crumbling castle mansion that we mentioned in part one. And she opened the school in Berlin. This was the first of many schools she would have. And her students were nicknamed the Isadorables by the press. That name persists even to this day. Uh, she started the school initially with a co-educational model with both boys and girls enrolled. But over time... And due to minimal interest, she started taking only female students. Also in 1905, Isadora met a man named Gordon Craig while she was performing in Berlin. Craig was essentially English theater royalty. He was the son of Dame Ellen Terry, who was one of England's most famous stage actresses. He had become a theatrical designer, and Isadora felt deeply in love with him. From the night she met him, she stayed with him for two weeks, her mother actually thought she had gone missing. Duncan described Craig as, quote, one of the most extraordinary geniuses of our epoch, a creature like Shelley made of fire and lightning. Yeah, he's often described as the, like the great love of her life. Uh, Craig and Duncan had a daughter together in 1906 named Deirdre Beatrice, and they had not gotten married. Uh, Gordon Craig was actually already married. He also already had a number of children out of wedlock with other women, uh, he would go on to have even more. Their romance ended after a few years, but the two of them stayed lifelong friends. Uh, but all of this really significantly strained Isadora's relationship to her mother, who had been horrified by Craig and called him a lot of bad names about being a a, a seducer, and also uh, was probably pretty horrified that she was with someone who was cheating on his wife since that had broken up her marriage. Uh, and the whole having a child out of wedlock really upset her. Soon after the affair with Craig ended, Isadora started a relationship with Paris Singer, the son of sewing machine mogul Isaac Singer, who we have talked about on the show before. This was an interesting relationship. Isadora often found Paris to be a spoiled, bullheaded man, and she was often frustrated that he seemed to think himself above working people who were the very same people who had built his fortune, but she still loved him. Duncan and Singer welcomed a son into the world in 1910. He was named Patrick. Yeah, their relationship is fascinating to me. Um, while she was still pregnant, she toured the United States with German conductor Walter Damrosch, and her performance and the very filmy drapes of fabric which allowed her body to be seen beneath them was considered a revelation by some and absolutely shocking and immoral by others. Remember, she had tossed all of that ballet convention out of the window. She really was, like, going for the Grecian look, but in these very see-through filmy outfits. President Theodore Roosevelt eventually offered his take, which quelled the detractors a good bit when he said, quote, Isadora Duncan seems to me as innocent as a child dancing through the garden in the morning sunshine and picking the beautiful flowers of her fantasy. Duncan had an experience during a performance in Paris in 1913 that really seems to have prophesied a great tragedy. She was dancing to Chopin's funeral march at the Trocadero when she had what she described as a sense of foreboding regarding her children. And she smelled, quote, white tuberoses and funeral flowers. 
She later wrote, quote, This was the first faint note of the prelude of the tragedy, which presently was to end all my hopes of any natural, joyous life for me forever after. Several days later, Isadora parted ways with her children and their nanny so that the kids could go home to rest after they had had lunch with Paris Singer, who she refers to in her writing as Lohengrin after the Wagner opera. Isadora had to go to rehearsal for a show that she was contracted for, and the nanny thought that the children were too tired to wait through rehearsal. On the way home, the car carrying the nanny and children stalled, and it was on a slope when the chauffeur got out to crank the engine. The car started, but he could not get back in fast enough, and the vehicle plummeted into the Seine. All three of them died. Duncan described the moment that she heard what happened from Paris himself, writing, quote, I remember a strange stillness came upon me. Only in my throat I felt a burning, as if I had swallowed some live coals. But I could not understand. So this was a just unimaginable loss, and Duncan understandably thought she was never going to dance again or do much of anything. But just as she always had, she let her emotions fuel her work. She choreographed two pieces reflecting her sorrow. They were Mother and March Funebre. These were to the piano sonata by Chopin of the same name. Yeah, you can actually find uh, videos of modern performances of those dances if you want to see them. Uh, you just Google literally Isadora Duncan Mother or Isadora Duncan Marsh Funebre and they will come right up. Uh, next, we are going to delve into how Isadora tried to move on with her life. But before we tackle that, we will pause for a word from the sponsors that keep Stuff You Missed in History Class going. Paris Singer had wanted to marry Isadora Duncan, and he, you know, proclaimed this after the deaths of the children, but she refused. To him, it was like, I can set you up. You don't have to dance anymore if you don't want to. I will take care of you. But she really, really still hated the idea of marriage. And as the two of them struggled with their grief and their disagreement over where their relationship was going, things kind of fell apart. And after feeling that she either had to end her life or find some purpose to it, Isadora decided to spend some time in Albania, where her brother Raymond was working with refugees of the Balkan Wars. Isadora next went to Italy. She spent some time with close friend and actress Eleonora Duse, who was nursing her own broken heart over the end of her relationship with feminist playwright Lina Poletti. There's been a lot of speculation about whether Duncan and Duza ever had a romantic relationship, but there's not really anything definitive here. There is the possibility that Duncan had an affair with Mercedes de Costa several years later and possibly with other women as well. But it really does seem like Eleonora was more of a best friend. And in her autobiography, Duncan speaks of the closeness that she felt to Eleonora and specifically how... Eleonora did the one thing that no one else was able to do for her during this time. She actually asked Isadora to talk about her children. She wrote of her friend, quote, She never said, cease to grieve, but she grieved with me. And for the first time since their death, I felt I was not alone. For Eleonora Duza was a super being. Her heart was so great, it could receive the tragedy of the world. Her spirit, the most radiant that has ever shone through the dark sorrows of this earth. While in Italy, she met Romano Romanelli, who was a sculptor, and even though she barely knew him, she said to him, quote, save me, save more than my life, my reason, give me a child. She told Eleonora that she thought he was the next Michelangelo, 
The two of them did not start a relationship. Romanelli was engaged and intended to marry his fiance, and Duncan was not really bothered by this. She did get pregnant again. And according to her, quote, from this moment, I entered into a phase of intense mysticism. I felt that my children's spirits hovered near me, that they would return to console me on earth. But the hope of new life was snuffed out pretty quickly. Her child, who was a son, died shortly after being born in August of 1914 as she heard the military mobilization outside. Yeah, World War I was starting. She had really believed that either Patrick or Deirdre was going to be reincarnated in this child that she had had uh, conceived with Romanelli. So there was a, a lot going on. She clearly, again, was still working through a lot of very serious grief. By the time she had the baby, she had moved back to Paris. That was at the urging of Paris Singer, who was still back in her life uh, and was bankrolling a new school for her in Bellevue, just outside of Paris. But as her pregnancy progressed and she grew very, very tired, Singer arranged for all of the students to travel to England for two months so that Duncan could rest. In addition to a depression that seemed to loom in her third trimester, the events that had led up to World War II were playing out, and that made her feel even more melancholy. She describes this sense of sort of hopelessness with the world. Her school was also turned into a war hospital during this time, so they basically like commandeered it, brought in cots, and set it up in this way. The students that had traveled to England were housed in Singer's home in Devonshire to wait out the conflict. After the death of her third child, Duncan traveled to Deville with her friend, and she continued to be unwell. She had a brief affair with her doctor, but soon she left for New York in the hope of getting a truly fresh start away from all of these memories and sorrows. That affair with that doctor is very strange and also full of coincidence, where allegedly he was also the doctor that tried to save her children after they had been brought into the hospital um, after they had their car had gone uh, into the Seine. And so there was just a, a weird dynamic at play between the two of them. So she restarted her school anew after reuniting with her siblings, Augustine and Elizabeth, in New York. And she started performing again. And at the end of a performance she gave at the Met, she improvised a dance to the Marseillaise while wearing a red shawl to honor the French troops, in the hopes that it would rouse her U.S. audience. She had found the United States to be shockingly indifferent to what was going on in Europe. She wanted to try to inspire them to take action. And the audience cheered as she finished, but it wasn't really what she was hoping for. She also booked the Century Theater for a new production, but she wanted to transform it into a Greek theater for the performances. Her production of Oedipus, which her brother Augustine starred in, was playing to a theater where blue curtains had been hung over the boxes, and the orchestra seating had been pulled out and replaced just with a blue carpet. This show was a critical success, but Duncan went bankrupt staging it. She had also grown completely disillusioned with American audiences. She was horrified that they wanted just to have a good time while so many people were dying overseas. Thanks to the generosity of a benefactor, she was able to book passage on a ship back to Europe, specifically to Italy. Once again, she met up with many of her students there. After regrouping in Naples, they headed for Zurich and for the relative safety of neutral Switzerland. But keeping this school running in its nomadic state, having to rent new spaces all the time, was getting costly. So when a contract to perform in South America was offered, Duncan took it to keep the school going. 
Her boat made a stop in New York en route to Buenos Aires, and her brother Augustin joined her so that he could keep an eye on her while she was in Argentina. On her first night there, she was persuaded to tango with some local students. And it turned out this was a problem because it was technically a breach of her contract. As it was written up in the papers as a performance, this put her in violation of an exclusivity clause. So her tour was basically over before it started, and she had received word in the meantime that the money that she had already sent to Switzerland to keep the school going had been held up because of the war. She sent Augustine ahead to Geneva with what money she had to try to save the students from eviction, while she and her pianist tried to drum up some additional money by booking gigs. She did not enjoy any of this. When they moved on to Montevideo, they had greater success. And then in Rio, her pianist was so popular that he decided to stay when Duncan decided to head to New York. Yeah, he was like, South America loves me. Let's stick around. Um, I think he was probably also reluctant to return to Europe because it was in the middle of a war. By complete coincidence, Paris Singer was also in New York, and when he heard that Isadora was at the docks by herself with no money, he immediately went to help her. She described him at this time as being in, quote, one of his kindest and most generous moods. And they first went to lunch with a friend, and they drank champagne, and after that, Singer booked the Metropolitan Opera House, and he arranged for all of their friends in the art community of New York to attend a free gala performance by Isadora that night. Singer also wired money to Switzerland for Duncan's students, but at that point, they had all left and gone home. Their parents had come to collect them. Her school was over, at least for the time being. We really cannot overstate her attachment to this school. She really considered her students to be her daughters, and a lot of them even took the last name Duncan and used it for the rest of their lives. She had students that stayed with her for decades and then taught the younger students So it was a school, but it was also more than that. And to lose the school after losing Deirdre and Patrick was just one more heartache. Once again, with Singer's generosity, Isadora rented a studio, and she and Paris and Augustine and Augustine's children spent the days together. She would later write, quote, In fact, for the time being, life became wonderful through the magic power of money. Soon, as her health faltered in the face of the New York winter, Singer arranged for her to travel to Cuba with his secretary as her escort. The time in Havana really did her good, and from there she traveled to Palm Beach, Florida, where Singer met her. But she was still grieving really heavily through all of this. To outsiders, she seemed to have regained at least some of the spirit that she had lost when her children died, but she wrote of feeling extraordinary pain any time she saw a child with its mother, and how this disparity between her continuing grief versus people believing she was over it, like that was its own kind of pain. Simultaneously, things were once again turning sour between her and Paris Singer. He started to have jealous outbursts when she spoke with other men. She describes this evening in her book where she was teaching a a much younger man how to tango, and Singer kind of grabbed her by the arm and spun her around and started yelling at her about it. So he left her rather abruptly. Um, He did not give her a warning, and he stopped paying for her hotel and her school, and so she soon found herself broke in New York with no way to get anywhere. She pawned some of the gifts that Singer had given her to get by for a while, and then she took a contract that brought her back to California for the first time in more than two decades. 
She also reunited with her mother, who had moved back to California because she did not like staying in Europe, and from whom she had been somewhat estranged for some time due to her unconventional lifestyle. California had its own surprises and its own doses of disillusionment waiting for Duncan, and we will get to that after we take one more sponsor break. Isadora was welcomed as something of a hometown hero in San Francisco on this tour. And that gave her the idea that it might be a great place to start a school in her hometown. But there was a problem, because by that point, there were already multiple dance schools that taught her more modern, less structured style of dance. They were kind of copycats of the schools that she had set up with her sister years and years before. So she once again found disillusionment. She felt that the dance that she had envisioned to truly express the American spirit had been watered down as it had spread in popularity. And to make matters worse, no one was interested in backing a school, even if it was run by the originator of the form. So in 1921, she set out with a very new purpose. She wanted to open a dance school in Moscow. The Russian Revolution of 1917 had captured her imagination, and she was convinced that she would fit right in in this newly formed Soviet Republic. She envisioned something bigger than she had ever been able to put together on her own with thousands of students to teach. According to her memoir, she had been sent a telegram in the spring of 1921, which read, quote, The Russian government alone can understand you. Come to us. We will make your school. And she replied that she would indeed teach Russia's children to dance so long as they provided her with a school and, quote, the wherewithal to work. She moved to her new job with only one of her students turned teachers, which was Irma Duncan. And Isadora did flourish in Moscow. She choreographed new works, including the Revolutionary in 1922, and she did indeed teach. She also met a young man named Sergei Yasenin, and they got married, which surprises me. He was 18 years younger than she was, and the marriage was so that he could travel to the United States on engagements. Right. If they had not been married, he would not have been allowed into the country. And when she traveled to the U.S., Duncan was a little bit surprised by the reception she received, which was highly critical of her affinity for Russia and for Vladimir Lenin. Both Duncan and her husband were accused of being Bolshevik agents. They were apparently stopped in New York at the port of entry. She responded to these criticisms by making the point that though she was not particularly interested in the politics of her new home country, she felt that all artists are inherently revolutionary. So, of course, it made perfect sense that she would be drawn to a revolutionary place. During their time in the U.S., the relationship between Duncan and her husband was reported widely. When he got drunk at a party in the Bronx, the papers the next day ran stories that he had become violent and had given his wife two black eyes. When she left the U.S., Isadora swore she would never return. After the two of them returned to Europe, he started to exhibit increasing instability. Their relationship was deeply strained. In 1923, Yasinin returned to the Soviet Union by himself, and in 1925, he was found dead, apparently by suicide. After the split with Yasenin, Isadora lived in Nice. She returned to France once again. She would claim to anyone who asked that Moscow had been too bourgeois for her. 
This was not a glamorous time in her life. She was getting older. She recognized that she was not the useful beauty she had once been. And she was prone to drinking too much. And her finances remained perpetually on the edge of ruin. In early 1927, Duncan took on a project that had been brewing in her mind for quite some time. She wrote her autobiography. When she started this memoir, she opened it with, quote, I confess that when it was first proposed to me, I had a terror of writing this book. Not that my life has not been more interesting than any novel and more adventurous than any cinema, and if really well-written, would not be an epoch-making recital. But there's the rub, the writing of it. Yeah, she was not a writer up to this point, even though there were writers in her family. And I will say, her memoir is a really fun read. Uh, Isadora Duncan may not have had formal schooling after she was quite young, but she was a very smart woman. Her writing style is filled with really wonderfully expressive turns of phrase. It is incredibly frank on topics of sex and love, and she doesn't seem to really hide much of anything. And as some of the quotes we've used here indicate, it also reveals a person who in some ways was just incredibly ignorant for all of her world travels. One of the things that's really fascinating is how even though it was written when she was done with her Moscow phase, the ending of this book really reads almost like Bolshevik propaganda. For example, it ends with her arriving in Moscow, even though that means it omits several years from her life after that. The last two paragraphs read, quote, When the boat at last arrived, my heart gave a great throb of joy. Now for the beautiful new world that had been created. Now for the world of comrades. The dream that had been conceived in the head of Buddha. The dream that had been resounded through the words of Christ. The dream that has been the ultimate hope of all great artists. The dream that Lenin had by a great magic turned into reality. I was entering now into this dream that my work and life might become a part of its glorious promise. A due old world, I would hail a new world. Yeah, reading that kind of blew me away. I was like, whoa, this is like way after she had already left the Soviet Union and and had all kinds of trouble because of her time there. She actually finished writing this book in late August of 1927. She turned in a manuscript that was entirely handwritten. Why she chose to end it in 1921 and ignore her marriage to Yesenin and her return to France is just a mystery. We don't know. She had also been reported as having gotten engaged to Bob Chandler, who was a New York decorative artist in 1927, but she claimed that had been a dinner party joke between friends that had somehow reached the press. Yeah, it's interesting when you read newspaper reports of of this last section of her life, many of them do mention like, oh, if only she had been able to marry Bob, everything would have been different. Uh, She gave a quote to an Associated Press reporter in September of 1927 that is often mentioned as eerily prescient. When talking about her autobiography, she said, quote, for the first time I am writing for money. Now I'm frightened that some quick accident might happen. And so that brings us now to her very famous and grisly death. The details of this story have two different setups. One is that while she was living in Nice in September of 1927, Isadora met a young man driving a Bugatti convertible. She suggested to him that she would love it if he would take her for a drive, and he agreed. And the other is that the car was hers, a new car, and that her chauffeur was teaching her to drive it. 
According to some stories, she turned to her friends as the car started and said, Adieu, mes amis, je vais à la gloire, which is goodbye, my friends. I am going to glory. But despite those inconsistencies, what is consistent is that at 9.40 p.m. on September 14th, she was in the vehicle on the Promenade des Anglais when her long scarf was picked up by the wind, became entangled in the car's rear wheel, and her neck was broken. Today, Isadora Duncan's work survives. Her choreography has been passed down through generations of her students, and you can see her work performed today. The Isadora Duncan Dance Company and Isadora Duncan Foundation are both run by Lori Bellilove, who's a third-generation Duncan dancer. This episode is kind of a bummer to end with. (laughs) So uh, I I don't want to do that to anybody. So to finish on a slightly more upbeat note, uh, I thought it would be fun to end on a passage that just struck me from Duncan's autobiography, which was published shortly after her death. Uh, obviously, because she had had died so suddenly, she was not able to make any revisions to it. So most of it's pretty, pretty much entirely um, transcribed from her handwriting. The version I have has notes of when like spellings were different and whatnot. But other than that, it's pretty much word for word. And I like this passage because it, it evidences that for all the flaws that she had, she was also very sharp and funny and self-aware. She wrote, quote, How can we write the truth about ourselves? Do we even know it? There is the vision our friends have of us, the vision we have of ourselves, and the vision our lover has of us. Also the vision our enemies have of us, and all these visions are different. I have good reason to know this because I have had served to me with my morning coffee newspaper criticisms that declared I was beautiful as a goddess and that I was a genius and hardly had I finished smiling contentedly over this than I picked up the next paper and read that I was without any talent, badly shaped, and a perfect harpy. I soon gave up reading criticisms of my work. I could not stipulate that I should only be given the good ones and the bad were too depressing and provocatively homicidal. I love that quote so much <laughs> uh, because she is funny and, and yeah. very interesting. And uh, it does sort of break my heart that when you say her name, most people go, yeah, and she die in that gross car accident, which she did. But obviously she had a whole, whole interesting, very fascinating life. Yeah. I do highly recommend her uh, her autobiography because it is a fun read and it's a pretty quick read. Do you have some listener mail for us as we wrap this up? I do, I do. Um, The first is from our listener, Carla, who writes, Dear Holly and Tracy, I just listened to your podcast on John Dalton. My dad is red-green color deficient. I very distinctly remember learning this in the hardware store. We were standing in front of a bunch of dowels that had been color-coded in varying shades of green. My dad, who is a very even-tempered man, grunted and said, These idiots, which was about the harshest thing he had ever said in my presence. He asked me if I could get the one that matched the size he needed. He then explained to me why it was so bad to label stuff in only color coding because people like him could not tell the difference. I'm very happy to hear of the trend moving toward using the term color-deficient vision since it helps people understand what's really happening. In middle school, I corrected my science teacher when he said that colorblind people only saw in shades of gray. If my dad wasn't colorblind, as they used to say, I would have just believed my teacher. I ended up giving the class a lecture on why color-coding by itself is bad, just like my dad had done for me. 
My dad has always been pretty comfortable with his color deficiency. He'll make comments like, heck, I'm colorblind, and even I can tell that doesn't look good. I think the funniest thing he's done was paint the living room wall purple, thinking it was gray. Uh, Thank you for your thoughtful podcast that shed light on so many subjects. Every time I listen to your podcast, I feel a bit smarter. Carla, um, that's adorable. Uh, I, to the best of my knowledge, do not have color vision deficiency and still painted my living room purple. Uh, (laughs) um, I also wanted to mention a quick email from Kathleen who wrote us. She also wrote, uh, we mentioned it in the last episode, about the new information about the Dyatlov Pass. But there's a second part of her email that I wanted to share because it's adorable. Uh, It's a dog story. Second, I wanted to thank you for your Hellhounds episode as it provided a middle name for my newest dog. My first dog, Mackie McSpottybutt Grogan, got his middle name because when he gets shaved in the summer, he turns into a Dalmatian under all his fur. However, I'd had my second dog, Miriam, for months and still not been able to come up with a middle name for her. But after your Hellhounds episode, her middle name simply had to be Rougarou. She is black and her nickname is Monster because she's a high-energy jerk who gets into everything. She and I say thanks. I hope these pictures of the destruction she can cause and the videos of her (laughs) being a turd, dragging my other dog around by his leash and running while carrying a log bright in your 2021. All the best, Katie. Um, She sent two videos of um, Miss Miriam Rougarou and Mackie, and they are adorable. I have a dog crush on Miriam. It's exactly the cute flavor of dog I love. It's a little black thing with perky, pokey up ears, and she looks like she probably keeps you on your toes. So thank you, thank you, thank you, because that did make 2021 great. Uh, You can also write to us (laughs) at HistoryPodcast at iHeartRadio.com. You can find us everywhere on social media as Missed in History, and if you would like to subscribe, you can do that on the iHeartRadio app, at Apple Podcasts, or wherever it is you listen. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.